invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. We'll consider this morning chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezekiel, where we continue our series. Again, taking a fairly large chunk of scripture, two chapters uh, this morning. As you recall from last week, Ezekiel had to declare a message of God's judgment visibly and visually and bodily, even in chapters 4 and 5. Ezekiel had to engage in four symbolic acts to dramatize the coming siege and destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians in just a few years' time. Uh, He was to be bound with cords and lay on his side and eating small portions of bread baked over cow's dung and shaving his head and disposing the one-third portions of his hair with a sword and the fire and the wind. That very same message he dramatized, now he uh, proclaims verbally in our passage concerning that day of judgment to come. Uh, Ezekiel is declaring to his contemporaries in 592 B.C. that that day is surely coming, the day of the wrath of the Lord, when God will pour out his holy anger and fury in judgment against the people of Israel for all their abominable iniquity and for all their adulterous idolatry. So this is the message of judgment. We'll give attention to it and Ezekiel chapters 6 and 7. And before we do so, let's first go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help and blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Uh, Thank you that you have, as you have promised, set the descendant of David upon the everlasting throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the king, to be the everlasting ruler who can bless the provisions of his house and satisfy the hungry and the poor. And we confess that this is that very provision you have appointed. We thank you and praise you that your word is pure and uh, clear, and we rejoice in its truthfulness, that it is able to save us. And we thank you that through it you speak to us, and we pray that you would address our souls uh, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and help us to see and hear uh, the words of life and set forth in it uh, the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sufficient and glorious Savior in whom we trust, uh, whom we love, and whom we exalt. And fill our hearts then with awe and wonder and joy and humble confidence and gratitude as we hear your words ministering to our souls this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hear God's word beginning in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken and I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, 
and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste, and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord, when their slain lie among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountain tops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offer pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch up my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Ribla. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for all your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes, an end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult, not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day, behold it comes, your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness, none of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be prominence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is upon all their multitude, for the seller shall not return to what she has, he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, 
it shall not turn back. And because of his, his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without. Pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves, doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, and horror covers them. Shame is on their fa- on all faces, and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane profane my treasure's place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Thus far this reading in God's holy word. Well, these are the first words out of the mouth of Ezekiel once the Lord opened Ezekiel's mouth. What's pro- prophesied and proclaimed and portrayed in these two chapters was, however, by no means exhausted when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. as announced in our passage. What is depicted here was by no means exhausted when the inhabitants of the land, the people of Israel, suffered some horrific things and perished under God's covenant curse at the hands of the foreign invaders, the Babylonians, exactly as announced here. You see a series of staccato announcements from the lips of Ezekiel. He cried out to the people, disaster upon disaster, your doom has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. It will be waste and ruin all around you. God's eye will not spare you. God will not pity until he has poured out all his wrath upon you and he will punish you for all your abominations. Behold the day, behold the day comes, the day of the Lord, the day of the wrath of the Lord. This is the same message that other prophets like Isaiah and Amos had been preaching to the people of God before the generation of Ezekiel. Something unthinkable and unimaginable would happen. God would bring judgment through the instrumentality of a pagan nation, Babylon, 
and executes his wrath upon his people. Amos, for example, in chapter 5, verse 18, says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord, a day of darkness, not of light, day of gloom with no brightness in it? And when that day did come in history, in the experience of Israel, we discover that, however, that was only a limited and localized expression of the wrath of God that Ezekiel spoke about here. That was but a preview and glimpse of the day of judgment that yet awaits its fulfillment. Because the gospel reveals that in a much more solemn and universal way, the Spirit of God announces to the whole world through the preaching of the gospel, indeed, behold, the day. There is coming a day of doom and darkness and destruction, a day fixed in the purpose of God, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Behold, it comes. The end is near. And what will it be like on that great day of wrath? And surely that's the question echoed so clearly in our passage, which we find all the more amplified in gospel preaching. Because that's the question truly the cross puts before sinners, isn't it? That's the question which Jesus Christ wants us to reckon with as he draws us to himself through the gospel. People in this world, of course, scoff at that very notion, saying, where is this promise of his coming? When is this day of the Lord coming? There is no such thing as judgment and wrath. Things remain the same in this world. Let us eat, drink, be merry, live for pleasure, live in the moment, for tomorrow we die. And surely we will rest in peace once we die. That's the attitude prevalent in our culture this uh, 21st century. And that would have been the reaction of Ezekiel's contemporaries as well. But Ezekiel is seeking to shatter that utopian illusion with truth and reality. And he does so here, you notice, by proclaiming the name of the Lord. And it is here that we learn the Lord's name. If you look in chapter 7, verse 9, Ezekiel says, when you see all that will take place in judgment upon Jerusalem, you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. It's a name we are not very familiar with. Jehovah Makkeh. Thus says the Lord, I am the Lord who strikes. Now we know with great familiarity our Savior God as the Lord who will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Name declared when a sacrificial ram was uh, provided to spare Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. Instead of Abram's only son, the Lord will provide a sacrifice fitting. And we know God as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, the Lord who turns bitter water into sweet water for the people to drink in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, we know him as the Lord who is my banner, Jehovah Nisi, Exodus chapter 17, after the people of God in the wilderness defeated and triumphed over the Amalekites, the enemies, they declared by naming the altar, the Lord is my banner. The Lord who provides, the Lord who protects his people as our savior, the Lord who heals us. But do we know the Lord who strikes? The Lord who has decreed a day, the Lord who has fixed a day, 
And as Ezekiel says here, behold, that day comes. It is near. The end is coming. When the Lord will strike sinners with his wrath. When the Lord will strike sinners with his sword of judgment in anger. And Prophet Ezekiel to his contemporary generation is revealing to them what that day will bring upon them. What that day is going to be like. Speaking in about 592 BC, he's looking at an event to take place in about five, six years time, 586 BC or so. But yet the gospel truly brings that picture to its ultimate uh, trajectory to declare that there is yet coming a day, the day when the Lord will pour up upon all the inhabitants of the earth his wrath and anger. What, is, what does that day look like? What is that day going to be like? What does it mean for the Lord to strike in judgment? I want you to see briefly five things that this passage reveals to us about that coming day that the scripture declares. First of all, that day of judgment, uh, we read in these chapters throughout the scriptures uh, that that day of judgment will be exactly according to his word. God's wrath poured upon sinners will be exactly as the Lord has already spoken in his word. These two chapters are like the sermon that Ezekiel preaches. And his sermon is basically concerning that day. And it's entirely based upon Leviticus chapter 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. All the detailed contents of what Ezekiel decrees here are all found in those two chapters where God announces the curses that await covenant breakers. The concrete expressions of judgment that the people are to face, sword, famine, pestilence, exile, all of them are playing out according as God has already spoken. If you look in chapter 6, verse 10, the Lord says, They shall know on that day that I am the Lord, and I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Judgment will not be a surprise. It's already been revealed in the scriptures. Judgment will always be according to and based on God's word. Listen to to Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So that's the first truth about that day of judgment. He has already spoken. Judgment is a reality. Hell is a real place. And judgment will always be according to the word of the Lord. And God has spoken in the gospel that sinners without a covering, without a refuge on that great day will be cast into the lake of fire to suffer everlasting torments of destruction away from the presence of the Lord in outer darkness, which is called the second death. And that's the first thing we see in Ezekiel. It'll always be according to God's word. But then secondly, we see that judgment will be exactly according to your works. Judgment of the last day will be in accordance with the works done in the body. Uh, Many times throughout our chapters, 
For example, chapter 7, verse 3, verse 8, verse 9, the Lord says, I will judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations. The judgment he will render unto each will be according to what they themselves have done. And the same truth is declared in the gospel that on the day when God comes to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, it will be according to the works done in the body. And because it's according to works, the Bible says judgment will be retributive. God will repay and sin will receive exactly what it deserves. The soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. The disobedient are under curse and wrath of the Lord. But then certainly we see here that Ezekiel's announcing the judgment has a personal and universal dimension, not partial and limited. God's dimension, God's judgment will always personal. It'll be universal. Each must stand before the judgment seat of God. Not people in the aggregate, but each will stand before a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will pour out his wrath. He will spend his anger upon sinners personally. And that's what Ezekiel means here by disaster and doom. And this is a judgment that knows no partiality. It reaches all classes of men. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 27, we see king, prince, the people, it doesn't matter. They'll all come under judgment, all classes of men, rich, poor, great, small, men, women, boys, and girls. And at the same time, it'll be universal. Notice the universal language used in verses 12 through 14 in chapter 7, where the Lord says, The wrath is upon all their multitude. All the men, they will receive personally, and it will be absolutely unmitigated terror and disaster. Now that really happened in Jerusalem in 586 BC. And the gospel declares there comes a day when both the living and the dead will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and wrath will personally be poured out upon them and all mankind will be on the receiving end of that without a covering, without a refuge. Two more things I want you to see. Fourthly, uh, we see that God's judgment announced here will be inevitable and inescapable. It's just like what Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. It's like the labor pains upon a pregnant woman. It cannot be avoided. You know it's coming, and it cannot be avoided. And even Ezekiel here says, Behold, the day comes, it comes, the time has come, the day has arrived. There's no escape. Nothing, there's nothing that can deliver people from the wrath to come. No amount of remorse on that day can reverse the situation. Chapter 7, verse 18, they can put on sackcloth in a belated show of religiosity, but only horror and shame will cover them. Verse 19, silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Verse 27, they will seek a vision, some kind of instruction and counsel from the prophet, from the priest, from the elders, 
but it'll all be in vain because they will have to face. They will be searched out. There will be no escape. They'll be naked and exposed before the eyes of him who will on that day have no pity. And Ezekiel reinforces that message with the imagery. There will be sword without, pestilence and famine within. In the city, in the field, they will perish. Verse 7 of chapter 7, it will be a day of tumult. Cannot escape the doom. It will be a tumultuous day, not a day of joyful shouting on mountains. Verse 7. Now what Ezekiel gets at, it's a familiar image to the people of God. Isaiah chapter 40, go up on a high mountain and herald the glad tidings. You have it in the hymn, go tell it on a mountain. But that day will not be a day of joyful shouting on the mountains because none of the gospel mercy and joy will be available. The day of salvation has ended, no more joyful sound. It'll be only wailing and gnashing of teeth and absolutely nothing will remain. Look down in verse 11, chapter 7. You see, there is no wealth, no preeminence, no abundance. It will all be taken away. It will be inescapable. Then fifthly and finally, Ezekiel reveals that the judgment day will all be for the glory of God. Each message, each paragraph in this passage, he ends with the declaration so that they will know that I am the Lord, I am the Lord who strikes. Well, that's the doctrine of the last day of judgment, which is a day of wrath, which is the day is coming, the day that is near. But that's not the whole picture in the gospel, thankfully. And Jesus Christ came to declare a way of escape. Jesus Christ has come to declare the way of salvation from the Lord who strikes. Because salvation indeed comes from the Lord and he himself will provide a way of salvation. And God has done so by sending his beloved son into the world, putting him forward as a propitiation for our sins to satisfy completely the wrath that is to be poured upon sinners. He took away the wrath of God by his death under curse and wrath on a cursed tree of Calvary. So we read these amazing words that we see sometimes without really pondering and chewing and meditating. Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a lamb to be slaughtered and we considered him stricken. We considered him smitten by God. And the question is, why is he being stricken? It's because the Lord who strikes struck not the sinners whom Jesus came to save, but he put forward a substitute to strike, his own beloved son. And looking upon the lamb led to the slaughter, prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, we considered him stricken. Why is the Lord's sword of righteous judgment directed against Christ? The answer is, is to save you. Is to save sinners. Is to deliver you out of the day of wrath that is coming upon the world. It is out of his love for you that he did this. 
he laid upon his own son the iniquity, abominable idolatry of us all. The shepherd is slain for the sheep. Zechariah chapter 13, strike the sheep, sheep, uh, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. What Isaiah sees, Zechariah also sees. He sees the sword of God's judgment activated to strike the shepherd, the man who stands next to the Lord, as his co-equal, if we read Isaiah, Zechariah chapter 13. It's something Moses saw. Strike the rock to give water to all the thirsty, needy people. That's the gospel, believers, that Jesus Christ, the Lord God, your Savior, stood in your place and faced the day of wrath on the day of Calvary. When he hung on the tree, when he drank from the cup, when he stood under the wrath of God and was struck in your place with the full force of the wrath of God, the flaming sword of judgment that Ezekiel is speaking about. So the day of the Lord, the day is coming, the day that is drawing near, the end which is coming is no longer a day of wrath for you and no longer a day of terror. The gospel says it will be a day of unspeakable joy filled with glory. It will be a day of our redemption, a day of unimaginable blessedness, a day of glory. The day when Jesus Christ comes back as the conquering king and judge to strike the nations with a rod of iron, when Jesus comes to strike sinners with a sword out of his mouth, the gospel says you will not be on the receiving end of that striking blow. It will no longer be a fearful thing that we dread because Jesus' word, the sharp double-edged sword, has become already sweet to your taste. It comes to you as a word of life, not a sentence of death and destruction, but as a word of life to you. It, when it cuts and wounds into your heart now, it may, it's, it's so that he may heal you, not to destroy you, not to condemn you, when it comes to tear you down is so that he may build you up by his grace. So that's the confidence you have in Jesus Christ. As we sing in the hymn, In Christ Alone, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Believers in Christ, therefore, Live with the confidence that you are not destined for wrath because he's the one who delivered you from the wrath to come. But that's a confidence that belongs only to those who are in Christ. And the question everyone has to ask is, have I truly found a refuge from the wrath to come in the one who himself was struck on behalf of sinners? Have I come into the one who will come back to strike sinners with his wrath on the day of judgment. The Bible says he is coming, the day is at hand, and the day is near. The Christian life is truly eschatological. That means you live in the light of the end. You live in the light of the day, you live in light of eternity. If you have confidence in Jesus Christ, then how do you know and how do you live? 
How do you live knowing that that day is surely coming? As Ezekiel says, behold a day. The end has come. And the end is near. How do you relate to the truth that Jesus is surely coming? And how do you face that day? Let me just end by giving you four things to take to heart as Christian believers. How you live in the light of the announcement of the shortcoming of the day of wrath, which will be the day of your glory. How do you live in the light of the day that is coming? First of all, the Bible says, saints of the Lord, you need to take heart and be strengthened by grace. Until the day Jesus comes back, take heart and be strengthened by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 17 of our passage in chapter 7. There's a curious imagery there. Because as the inhabitants of Jerusalem see the onset of the invasion and judgment, at the onset of panic, we read in verse 17 that all hands become feeble and all their needs turn to water. Now what's described there is the loss of bladder control. So at the sudden coming of danger and panic, People just lost the bladder control and all their needs turned to water. All their hands lost bearing. That's the kind of picture Ezekiel gives for those under judgment. But gloriously, scripture reverses that picture. In Isaiah chapter 35, which we will read this evening and quote it again in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that, O saints of the Lord, be strengthened Strengthen your weak knees and make firm your feeble knees and feeble hands and make sure your feet are not put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's a picture, in other words, of you walking by faith and being constantly strengthened by grace in the knowledge that all your sins have been forgiven. There's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Live in the sure assurance and knowledge that there is no more wrath remaining for believers. He has forgiven the sins of your youth. He has forgiven all the secret sins of your hearts. He has forgiven all your sins, both past, present, and future, when you are united to the Lord Jesus. So keep on being strengthened by the grace and keep yourself in the love of God and abide in the love of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul mentioned the exact same things Ezekiel announces to the inhabitants of Jerusalem by way of curse and judgment, Paul takes up those things and says, neither famine nor pestilence or sword or persecution or danger, even death, things that formerly belong to the covenant curses of God. In the providence of God, even if we were to face them in this world, I am convinced that none of those things shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the posture of faith. So be strengthened and be uh, strengthened by the grace and take heart, saints of the Lord. Then secondly, the Bible says we need to be sober-minded and be self-controlled as we see the day drawing near. If we truly take to heart the day of the Lord coming, we need to be sober-minded the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, indeed the end of all things is near. Chapter 4 verse 7, so be sober-minded 
be self-controlled for the sake of prayer. What Peter is saying is live as those who will one day give an account for every word, thought, and deed before the Lord Jesus. For the sake of prayer, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Interesting, those are the very qualities mentioned in the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Who are to be servants of Christ in the church? It is those who truly live in light of eternity and live as those who will give an account before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And know that you have access to the throne. The throne one day you will stand before is no longer a throne of judgment, but it's a throne of grace. And you have access to that throne even now by prayer. And so be sober-minded and self-controlled ceaselessly and be constant in prayer and living your life in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the Lord. So that's the second thing, how the saints live. The day of the Lord is coming. Therefore, we live in godliness and holiness with self-control and sober-mindedness. And thirdly, if you know that the day is coming, Scripture says you need to be with God's people in purposeful fellowship. The index of your spiritual awakeness, the index of your spiritual mindedness, the measuring stick of your eschatological readiness is what Paul says, what, what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to these verses. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider, listen to these, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, if you truly know that the day is coming, Give yourself to purposeful spiritual fellowship in person, meeting together, encouraging one another, constantly encouraging one another to love and good works as you see the day drawing near. Now, when you see that, inevitably it's a sign that people are living for the day to come. If you don't see that, it's an indication that the soul is in a state of drowsiness, Dozing off, not awakened. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Awake, O my soul, then Christ will shine upon you. That's your interaction with believers. Is your participation in the fellowship of the church on the Lord's day truly in the light of the coming of the Lord? And fourthly and finally, if you know the day of the Lord coming, Bible says, keep your love pure. It's a matter of the heart, in other words. And if you turn back to chapter 6, this is one thing that Ezekiel points out on account of which the wrath of God is coming. He says in in chapter 6, it's because, verse verse 9, when they have been scattered, they will know that how I have been broken over the whoring heart, adulterous heart that departed from me. In judgment, 
God points at the un, uh, adulterous, whoring, divided, worldly heart that departed from the Lord. And in the same way, in salvation, what the Lord restores us, restores in us and restores us to is a pure, unadulterated, devoted heart to the Lord. It's undivided devotion, in other words, to the Lord Jesus. Scripture says, do not lose the first love you had for the Lord. This is the chief aim of every pastoral ministry. The Apostle Paul said, this is the anxious thought that keeps me awake at night. It's to present you as a pure version to Christ with your hearts undivided in devotion to the Lord Jesus. He is the fairest of 10,000. He is the heavenly bridegroom of the church. And if you know the Lord is coming, the Lord says, keep your heart from idols. Keep your heart undivided. Do not be adulterous. Love of the world and love of God cannot coexist. Let your love to the Lord Jesus be indestructible and imperishable. Let your love of the Lord Jesus be pure and unblemished. Because that's the design, ultimately, of the day of the Lord. For saints, is it not? The Lord says, in the day of Christ, he will perfect the good work he began in you so that you may be blameless and pure in the day of Christ, that you may be guiltless in the day of Christ. And he who calls you into fellowship with Christ is faithful. He surely will do it. So those are the four things, practically, you need to live as eschatological believers who know that the day of the Lord is coming. You need to be purposeful in spiritual fellowship. You need to be undivided in your heart, devotion, and love to the Lord Jesus. You need to be sober-minded and self-controlled always, and you need to be constantly grounded in love and strengthened by grace. And you know how you express the love of God. You express love to the Lord Jesus. Jesus tells us, if you love me, he says to Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, then love my brothers. Spend time with them. Take care of them physically. Not just hide in your corner in your comfort, but be with the saints. If you love me, if you examine your life, if you love me, keep my commandments concretely. 40% of our Westminster Catechism is written to teach the church how to show love to the Lord Jesus in the exposition of the Ten Commandments. If you don't have anything to do this afternoon, just open up your catechism. Read through how it is that I can show love to my Lord Jesus, who is the first and foremost love and affection who owns my first and foremost affection. But let me end with this. At the end of the judgment announcement, the Lord says, they will know that I am the Lord. But here's the glorious privilege given to you. When you see the cross, when you see the day of wrath already taking place in the death of the Lord Jesus for you, it's not just that you come to know that he is the Lord. You come to know him.
That's the difference between the saints and the rest of the world. When you look upon the doctrine of judgment, you know me. You have come to know the Lord. And that's a perspective that you find refreshed and recalibrated every time you enter into the sanctuary of God. Psalmist says in Psalm 73, I know the end of prosperous people in this world who live without the hope of the gospel they will all perish. You will put them to an end. But as for me, it is good that I am near the Lord. As for me, it is good that he leads me in the way everlasting. Well, that's the message the gospel proclaims. The day of the Lord is coming. You are justified. Live accordingly as you see the day drawing near. Live accordingly for the one who loved you and died for you. Praise God that he is such a God of salvation and God of grace. Let's constantly give thanks and rejoice in him. Let's pray together.